Welcome to Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on a computer screen with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Martin Collier. Hey, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Also on our screens is the one and only Wayne Robbins. Hi, Wayne. Hello, Barney, Jasper, Martin, and Mark. Oh, very good. <laughs> Wayne is joining us from New York to talk about his career as a music writer and teacher, and specifically about one of our very favorite bands, Steely Dan. But why don't you start, Wayne, by telling us how and when you came into music in the first place? Okay, well, I was born in 1949, which was the peak of the baby boom and the best year to be born to grow up with rock and roll when everything happened to be the right age at the right time. So Elvis Presley came along, and I was a little young for that, but heard the, you know, my babysitter was an Elvis fan. <laughs> and I the first song I remember using my critical faculties for knowing that I had any, was Elvis's Wear My Ring Around Your Neck. And she was very excited. She was babysitting and she was playing the single. And I said, the lyrics don't make any sense. I said, <laughs> I said what is, you know, why would you, I had pictures of like <laughs> National Geographic magazines of African tribes with the multiple thick Oops. rings around the natives' necks. And she said, no, no. She says, it's when you go steady with a guy, he gives you the ring and you wear it on a chain around your neck. And I said, well, why doesn't he say so? You know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and then... You know, and then the rhyme I said, uh, and to let the world know I'm yours by heck. I said, what does heck mean? You know, I mean, it, you know, it's the rhyme is just too convenient. It's 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 not a good rhyme. Won't you wear my ring up around your neck to tell the world I'm yours by heck? And so I realized that this was kind of a, and this is the way I listened to music all the time. And I was eight, you know, nine years old, whatever. And so I, I always listened to, to music with, you know, kind of obsessive nuance. I paid attention. I was the kid in, at sixth grade parties. One, another, my friend Alan and I were both obsessives and, so we were the ones who were given the records to choose to people to dance to. And we would look at records and know whether, and, you know, I'd read labels. I'd see the record company and notice other artists who were on that record company and the similarities shared or not. I'd look at the writing credits, the producing credits, and I wonder, you know, if I saw a producer credit and I like two songs, two different songs by that producer, say Phil Spector or 
with the coasters seeing Lieber and Stoller as the writers and producers, I'd say, ah, well, Lieber and Stoller seem to have a lot to do with these coasters records that I love. So that's the way my mind worked. And I was also, you know, fell in love with the radio. And when I was in sixth grade, again, in sixth grade, which is when rock and roll really took over my life, I was 11 years old. It was 1960, 61. And a lot of people thought that this was a dead space for rock music because Elvis was in the army. Buddy Holly had died, uh, you know, the year before, along with Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. And, you know, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent all had their tragedies. Jerry Lee Lewis, but there were a lot of great dance records being made and and Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers and Shop Around by Smokey, by the Miracles, which was the first huge Motown hit in the States. So there was good music to listen to, but on a four-hour disc jockey shift, there was also... The great disc jockeys like Murray Kaufman, Murray the K in New York, and each city had their own, you know, really special disc jockeys who were like surrogate fathers to us. They had to play a lot of rock oldies. In fact, there was a popular album series called Oldies But Goodies by Art LeBeau out of Los Angeles. And Murray the K called the Golden Gassers or a blast from the past. And so <laughs> being 11 years old, you were exposed to the entire history of rock and roll because rock and roll was only five or six years old anyway. And doo-wop was going through a recurrence. And so just listening to the radio, one got an edge if one was a close listener you heard all the Chuck Berry and the Little Richard and the the doo-wop vocal groups and everything else, G by the Crows. So in a way, I internalized all this, so I knew all this stuff when it started. And unlike a lot of rock critics who, the older, slightly older rock critics, came into it through folk music, I came into rock through rock. <laughs> uh, so when the Beatles came around, I was in ninth grade and 14 years old, perfect age to, for that phenomenon and the English invasion through high school. But did you realize what you therefore presumably knew all the songs the Beatles were covering? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, even I knew that Boys was the flip side of a Shirelles hit. Maybe Will You Love Me Tomorrow. So, yeah. Twists and Shouts. I mean, you mentioned the Isleys. That's a classic yes. example. Very first Beatles record I bought with my own money, the Twist and Shout EP. <laughs> now, Twist and Shout is an interesting case study because I had this discussion on Twitter with someone who said, what is a cover that is better than the original or whatever? And I don't know, the topic of Twist and Shout came out, and I pointed out that the Isley Brothers did Twist and Shout first. But if you watch, if you put the two together, the Beatles version is better. And I don't say that about a lot of records. 
especially by R&B artists, covers of R&B artists, by white rock musicians. But the Isley Brothers were already stars here. Shout had been a huge single and one of the songs that kind of was a bridge between gospel, rhythm and blues, and soul music. It was a sanctified, Pentecostal kind of song that, you know, you changed the words, you know, from God to baby, and that's the story of soul music in a sentence, you know, gospel to soul, replace God with a girl. <laughs> so I imagine the Isleys saying, I mean, what is this twist crap they want us to sing? So they do a really good job because it's a really good song and it's a really good record. But when you see John Lennon sing Twist and Shout, you see the joy. I think it's the most joyous vocal performance I've ever seen Lennon do. And you see that connection that the Beatles had and it is still it's still mesmerizing. It's just extraordinary. And one of the things that makes John Lennon one of the great rock and roll vocalists ever. So I knew all this stuff, right? And it was the only thing that interested me. I was, I was like Donald Fagan, who was born, I think, a year or two before me, a really alienated teenager. I had a similar biography, you know, backstory to my life to his, in that when I was in ninth grade, my parents moved to a new upper middle class suburban neighborhood where I didn't know anybody and I didn't understand the social rules and it just seemed very far away from the blue collar, very 50s kind of rock and roll town, just a few miles away that I had grown up with and where I had a close circle of friends. And I my personality just went through a change and I withdrew and didn't know how to express myself. And so Gradually, I started, I, I, I remember the transition to the last record that I remembered before the Beatles was Sugar Shack by Jimmy Gilmore and the Fireballs. That was a huge U.S. hit. And, you know, they were a pretty good Texas, New Mexico bar band. And they, if you go through the Ace UK catalog, you could probably find a lot of their stuff, mostly instrumentals the fireballs but sugar shack was like a it was a lightweight but sweet rock song and then i heard i want to hold your hand and like it was a completely different thing can we jump forward like yeah. rather dramatically to <laughs> 1969 the first of the three pieces wayne that were featuring on the home page it might have been the first piece you wrote. I think you, you intimated as much in an email. And it's a piece about seeing the Rolling Stones in Oakland about a month before Altamont. Right. So what were you doing in California at that time? You were 20 years old and you were in San Francisco, or, or I'm guessing. 
Yeah, I was 19, actually. Okay. And this was after Bard College, where I left after my sophomore year. I was kind of asked to leave for academic reasons. <laughs> and I had, I had no interest in my classes, just as I had been through high school. I had found myself writing song lyrics and poems in high school and and my first year of college at a Long Island university and the idea that my identity became being the was the mad teenage poet from my neighborhood and influenced <laughs> by the beats howl by ginsburg coney island of the mind by ferlinghetti and kerouac's on the road and so I did what everybody was expected to do in 1969, if you weren't in college, which was head for California. And so I did. I made my way there. And I was staying in a, a hovel in the Mission District of San Francisco <laughs> that I rented for $20 a month, which was space for my sleeping bag on the floor. And that was about it no door it was a it was like a closet off the kitchen of a small rooming house and rolling stones were coming to town there was it was all you could hear about on the radio and in those days you could there was no ticket master or the other it was not a big grip off business so a couple of days before the show i walked into a record store and bought a ticket to the concert for I think $6, $6.50. And I hitchhiked to the concert in at Oakland Coliseum. The reason it has that quirky headline in the Rockback Pages library, B.B. King, Ike and Tina Turner, the Rolling Stones at Oakland Coliseum, was that, I don't know, I was talking to some hippie dude in a record store or something a couple of days before the show. And he was like, hey, man, are you going to go see the B.B. King concert in Oakland? <laughs> and I'm thinking about it for a minute. And I said, oh, the Stones with the Stones concert. Said, yeah, them too. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I have to just read, because one of the most extraordinary things about this piece, which a version of which was published in the Berkeley Barb, right? But this is, so there's a new song played, which will rank as one of Jagger's and Richard's all-time classics. It starts with Mick blowing from the hips on harmonica, then singing with savage intent. Keith's playing his ferocious rock blues. Then things slow down while Mick raps out the lyrics. Charlie and Bill, who've slowed to inaudibility, pick up the beats again. And then everyone in the arena's minds seems so blown, you can almost see the brain matter on the Coliseum ceiling. How do you <laughs> top the debut of Midnight Rambler? So you you heard them play Midnight Rambler for the first time at the Oakland Coliseum, um, and were clearly you had your mind blown, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and Let It Bleed was not even out at that at that point. As that's you, right. As you as you mention in the piece, that's that's right. It was uh, everybody knows we all know that it's very dangerous for a band to play material from its forthcoming album in a concert because that's when people go to get a beer or go to the bathroom, take a break. But this was, 
this was Let It Bleed, the songs from Let It Bleed that were being played live for the first time. And you could just, you could hear that the transition, the the Stones raising their level once again, even with the bad sound system at Oakland Coliseum and technical problems they were having that I talk about in the uh, that article. And so I was went to this show and I got back home and I was high on a lot of methadrine speed <laughs> and some very powerful weed and. I clearly was not going to sleep that night, and I decided to stay up and write an epic poem, because that's what I was. I was a poet, you know, about this concert. And then in the morning, the guy who was sort of the main guy in the house said that he was a, a reporter for the Berkeley Barb, and that the Barb's rock critic had left a couple of weeks earlier and gone to the rival Berkeley Tribe magazine, uh, (laughs) weekly newspaper. It was like the, you know, the Bolsheviks versus the Mensheviks, you know, the Trotskyites versus the Maoists. Uh, It was kind of like that, almost literally. And so nobody from the bar was at the concert, he tells me. He says, why don't you whittle this down a bit and bring a copy into the Barb office? So I did, and I, I used a typewriter there and handed it in, and they liked it, and they published it, and I got paid. In those days, you, would, you got paid by the column inch. I got paid... It was 28 column inches of type on the page. I got paid 50 cents per column inch. I got $14, which was enough to eat for a week in the Mission District of San Francisco back then. If monthly rent was $20 uh, for me. And the ironic thing is that the I didn't have a bank account, so the Barb editor had to take me into the local Bank of America branch <laughs> to co-sign the check for the Barb's bank account. So, you know, these radicals having to do business through the Bank of America, you know, which struck me as funny at the time. <laughs> I, I love the love I love that piece, and what's great is that kind of three sixty degree thing you get of the concert. It's, it's incredibly vivid. Thank you, Martin. You know, again, I was part of it was that I think it's the nature of a journalist to be an observer, to have an observer type personality, and I I didn't have a date for the concert. I bought one ticket. I was sitting in the last row of Oakland Coliseum. So yeah, I I was all I was already being affected by the new journalists who mm-hmm. participated in uh, their writing, uh, both from the Village Voice and New York Magazine. So Tom Wolfe and Pete Hamill and Jimmy Breslin and all these these writers who were rewriting the rules of of reporting had already started influencing me. And so that was something that I brought to the table, and I found out that I was good at it.
Another of the pieces that we're going to feature is about Steely Dan. So I'm going to take you back chronologically, very slightly, to Bard College. I know you didn't want this piece particularly highlighted or featured on the homepage, but I'm just going to quote from it anyway. This is a piece that I first wrote in 1974 in the NME. It was licensed from Cream magazine. We'll talk right. about Cream in a minute. But it's a piece that refers to Bard College. You mentioned Bard earlier. So you were at Bard, which is just like due north of Manhattan on the Hudson River. And two of the other students there, I don't know if they were direct contemporaries, were Walter Becker and Donald Fagan. And you mentioned in this 1974 piece that you would see them like around town in the coffee bars and so forth. Right. So, so that, so that is fascinating. And you refer to Bard as funky and fragmented. And one gets this, this, this sense of Walter and Donald. Can, can you, for our listeners, kind of invoke that sense of what these two these two guys were like in the late 60s before Steely Dan? They were like everybody else except more so. <laughs> <laughs> Bard was a school at the time. Now it's a, now it was always expensive. Now a Bard education is like something like $75,000 a year. And it's grown much larger. At the time, it was 600 students on 600 beautiful acres, rolling hills on, in overlooking the Hudson River. It was very self-contained. It was rural. It was isolated. There was one bar that I think uh, is the, David Jones, the name of the person who wrote the Donald Fagan biography. I think, I think it might be Peter Jones. So yeah, there's a Peter new Jones. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. He mentions a, a, there was one bar called Adolph's down the road, known as down the road at Adolph's that you could walk to from campus. And it was divided between, there was a, it wasn't really the, a rock and roll bar. What it was, was a bar with two rooms. The bar room on one entrance was for the townies, the local firemen and blue collar workers and things like that, who drank there. And the back room with our own entrance was for Bard students, and it had the jukebox. So we commandeered the jukebox and drank tequila shots, and that was our place. Um, but everybody, it was the first place that I met that I felt comfortable with people again from after moving to the new neighborhood at, in ninth grade, because everybody had been the crazy teenage poet from their high school. What Peter gets right is that there were quite a number of affluent people. The kind of people who went to Bard were the ones who were too fragmented to go to Harvard, Yale, or or Princeton. There were people from Ivy League families, but who did not take to formal education well and preferred. They were, we were the ones with the long hair before, you know, when it was still a new thing. And everybody, everybody knew, I think I've used this somehow, everybody knew the six people at Bard who did not smoke 
pot out of this <laughs> 600 students. You know, and that eccentricity was tolerated. <laughs> you know? We were a very tolerant bunch. That's fabulous. Yeah. So taking and Becker, they kept to themselves, and they had already met each other by the time I got to Bard. But so Fagan was in his senior year, and I was in my sophomore year. And so that is the uh, Fagan was already living in New York four days a week and working as a senior. All you did was your senior thesis, your senior paper, which he did on Herman Hesse. You know, but I was so happy to be there. And so I was friendly to everybody and with everybody. And so I would just, even if they were like antisocial and, you know, really kept to themselves, I just, I'd talk to people. I'd say, hi, how are you doing? What's going on? You know? And um, so I'd see them around. I did not know them personally, but I didn't give them much thought until early 1973 when Robert Criscow, the Dean of American Rock Critics, after my year off, from Bard, and I went to San Francisco and wrote for the Barb. Then I had to go through the process of escaping from the Army draft for Vietnam. And I ended up that summer in Boulder, Colorado, and I took courses and I got back into school in Boulder, and I was became a journalism major. So my junior and senior years of college, I spent in Boulder, and I also became the editor with my heavy Berkeley Barb credentials. I immediately became the music editor of the Boulder Express, Boulder Magazine. I got a job in a record store. When Boulder Magazine went to Spacey, they all wanted to become followers of the Maharaji, a guru who came to Boulder and was greeted rapturously because Boulder was to spiritual 60s consciousness what Berkeley was to political consciousness. Mm. Uh, it had those kind of seekers. The celebrities in Boulder were the best astrologers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not the Chicago <laughs> 7. <laughs> Just to explain why we are going to be talking in some depth about Steely Dan. It's the 50th anniversary coming up, the 50th anniversary of their first album, Can't Buy a Thrill. It's the 40th anniversary of Fagan's first solo album, the Immaculate Nightfly album. It's also, in a couple of weeks, it is the fifth anniversary of Walter Becker's death. So these three things have, have converged, and we and all, we all love Steely Dan. And yes. there's the anniversary of all of us loving Steely Dan. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I just to kind of put this in context from this side of the pond, I just wanted to ask Mark and Martin how they fell in love with Steely Dan, and then we'll come back to to you and pieces you've written about them. So, Mark, what was, what was, your, what was your initiation into Dan World? Well, hearing them, first of all, oddly enough, on Bob Harris's evening show on, on Radio 1, that would have been the first album. The first album I bought was actually the one after. Remind me, what was their second Countdown album? to Ecstasy. Countdown to Ecstasy. Countdown to Ecstasy. Yeah. That was the first one I actually bought. Martin and I, but we hadn't. I don't know if we'd met at that point by that point, Martin. But 
we both went to see them at was it Hammersmith Odeon or Rainbow? Rainbow. Rainbow. The Rainbow in seventy four. Yes. The night I went to was the bad night. Um they, they did two <laughs> they did two nights and, and um the, the better night was bootlegged and it was very much better. I also did the, the appalling thing of shouting the word boogie halfway through their set. <laughs> at which point Donald Fagan looked up, sneered, and went, huh? And I realised I'd sort of really made a pretty terrible mistake. Blossomed. You're disintegrated <laughs> on the spot. I, I, I'm pretty much disintegrated on the spot. Anyway, oh, <laughs> that's so go. funny. The, ma- the man who shouted boogie at a Steve Jaron concert. Jesus yeah, Christ. Big faux pas. Big faux pas. <laughs> Ma- Martin, what what was your first? What was your first? I honestly don't remember. I, re- I remember thinking I liked them because the, they were kind of slightly dark and they had cleverness and bite, but but they were complex too. But while being rooted in kind of American music like blues and soul and jazz, mm-hmm. and, and they were complex, but but they weren't prog rock. So that's why I like them because I really hated prog, which was a kind of you know the the thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were an antidote to that. Um, they also had Jeff Baxter as well, and I think that one of the initial things for a lot of us rock fans was they had this great fucking guitar player, you know, and which is a really dumb way of kind of getting into band. And it was in <laughs> a sense, it was Jeff leaving the band is when I started really understanding how good Steely Dan were because one wasn't distracted by that sort of, you know, thrashing guitar His noise. chops. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, yeah. Um, Ian McDonald, the, the rock critic, really hated that gig because of Jeff Baxter. Right. He really liked Denny Diaz. And I always thought, I wish Denny Diaz played more on the well, record. He was co- on, on that gig. On the- I suddenly realised how much of the solos were Denny Diaz's. Just also the construction of his stuff was so amazingly. Yeah. I mean, more jazzy, obviously. But he was half the volume of, of ba- Baxter. Yes, that, 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 he was. That and that gig. was Ian McDonald's yeah. point, <laughs> I think, yeah, was that yeah. too. This might be a good moment just to hear this clip from an audio interview that we've had on RBP for a while, which is actually an inter- I did with Walter and Donald. Same time you interviewed them, I don't know how many times you interviewed them, Wayne, but we both interviewed them in 2000. And this kind of corresponds like, to what we're talking about, the fact that Steely Dan were just clearly so different from certainly what you might call boogie bands. They were just <laughs> so, I mean, the first thing I ever heard by them was showbiz kids on radio Luxembourg, you know, when I was like 13 and it was really one of those, what the fuck is this kind of moments? Right. So <laughs> this, this is Walter with occasional contrib- interpolations from Donald in the background talking about, how they saw themselves and the, the fact that they were uh, a little bit different from your average American rock band. There was still a, a rock sort of uh, aesthetic, you know, that existed that we weren't connected to. And uh, I think, you know, it was definitely isolating in in some ways we were just trying to do something that was so different, essentially, musically, and that was so much more self... Yeah, our lyrics were... Maybe included a lot of traditional forms that people were... Right, right, that were sort of considered antithetical to rock. The the, the more attention they brought themselves, the less we seemed to... And I think we also we weren't afraid to listen to our parents' music, or really, you know, or uh, 
some version of that. Right. You know, like. Show business kids making movies of themselves, you know they But just to say, I mean, Wayne, you've mentioned this in, in your piece from 2000 for the Los Angeles Times. You say, friends for nearly 35 years, Fagan and Becker often answer questions simultaneously, ending each other's sentences like a long married couple that has survived rocky moments to emerge in a mutual comfort zone. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was very much my my experience. They were a great double act, weren't they? Right. Right. They really, they needed each other. They were two against nature, right? That yes. album title and those kind of combinations when they happen. And I'm not making any comparisons here, but when Lennon met McCartney and when Jagger met Richards, you, you know, they were greater than the sum of their parts. And Fagan and Becker are certainly that. They go way beyond because either of them alone had very little potential because their personalities were so insular and they were not great social beings. And, you know, you can only imagine if Donald Fagan gives the appearance and the likelihood of being miserable now, you know, imagine how <laughs> miserable he'd, he'd have been if he did become an English professor at Columbia University or something like that. Yeah. So they were inseparable and but they had to be they had they needed a separation which which they got. I just want to say, Mark, you mm-hmm. shouting boogie at the <laughs> Steely Dan concert must have been like the person who shouted Judas to Bob Dylan <laughs> in the band uh, in Manchester. Uh, <laughs> I love the comparison, far-fetched yeah. as it um, seems. I'll take that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> the man who shouted "Fuki." <laughs> uh, oh but, dear! You know, I was going to one important anecdote in my lo- long digression, for which I apologize. In 1973, Robert Christgau took me to see a concert at the Westbury Music Fair on Long Island because he was the rock critic for Newsday, on which was the Long Island newspaper. And I would follow him as Newsday's rock critic in 1975. And that was the next 20 years of my career. But at this concert at Westbury Music Fair, the headliners were Cheech and Chong, and the opening act was Steely Dan. Okay. Uh, (laughs) With David Palmer singing and all the rest. And it was not a Steely Dan crowd, but nobody knew what a Steely Dan crowd might be yet. In fact, we had... Uh, Can't Buy a Thrill was the only album out. I think some Countdown to Ecstasy was coming. or, But we used to have these discussions, Crisco and I had this discussion, whether Steely Dan was a singles band or an albums band. And nobody knew yet because they just had a couple of hits on the radio. They sounded good on the radio, but we didn't know whether they were going to be Steely Dan, the album band. 
Right, right, exactly. Martin, you mentioned Denny Diaz, and I think quite rather neatly, we have a new audio interview that we've not added before, which, the, which I'm going to ask Mark to talk about, which is with, with Denny from 1995, I think, isn't it, Mark? Yes, it's uh, a phone of Andy Gill on, on the phone to Denny. Uh, Denny isn't the most riveting person you've ever heard talking about popular music. <laughs> but it's interesting because it's Danny Diaz, who's a voice that really goes on, has gone unheard and largely in the history of the band. Uh, he talks about first meeting Becker and Fagan in New York, basically kind of starting to form bands and starting to play with them and being instantly struck by the sophistication of, of the material. I think for Danny Diaz, finding people who could write more chord changes than the standard, um, you know, one, four, five, was pretty exciting to him. Let's listen to the first clip. It's about him saying about what he felt made Steely Dan unique. The music is timeless. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's never been... Uh anything quite like it you know I mean uh, anybody that looks at it uh, on all levels uh, you know most people will appreciate the lyrics uh, but you know you, you show it to uh, to an accomplished musician that's been uh, you know hard at work uh, and, and you know just studying real music for uh, years and years and uh, and they're amazed especially when they haven't heard of it because uh, a lot of these people they don't listen to rock and roll mm-hmm. You know, like uh, people that uh, uh, that lead big bands, and you know, Woody Herman did, uh, did some of their songs. Uh, yeah. You know, and uh, when they when they hear it, they can't believe that this is rock and roll that uh, that they were unaware of the existence of. Jasper, I actually wanted to just bring you in here very quickly into, because I know how much jazz means to you and I know you like Steely Dan. I'm just curious to know how someone of your generation responds to the kind of jazzy elements in Steely Dan, which obviously become more pronounced as their career progresses. For sure. I think that it's part of what I like about Steely Dan. I mean, obviously I came to Steely Dan you know, much in post and didn't really know about them when I was getting into jazz. And it's interesting to now see that influence, but it does, they don't feel like jazz records. They're not, no. you know, there's it's jazz inflected mm. at times, but it's still rock in the sense that the solos are still very structured, are still very kind of defined. It's not like someone is taking a jazz style solo where they just go off on a set sure. of, of different explorations. So it's an interesting question as to what is it that's jazz? Is it just the harmonies? Is it kind of a, a sensibility even? Or is mm-hmm. it expensive chords? Expensive <laughs> chords. <laughs> and expensive studios, I guess, as well, is that, you know, the recording of it is done with a lot of precision because, you know, it's not, it's not about capturing a live sound. I don't know that I think of it as being like, I like it because I like jazz, but I certainly do like the jazzy elements. Great. No, no, yeah. so that, that is really interesting. I mean, Mark, I mean, do you want to tell us a bit more about the audio? Well, absolutely. I mean, he talks about going, joining them in Los Angeles, which is the the big thing for him. And 
the sort of relatively brief period when Steeds and were a band in the kind of fairly traditional sense. We can listen to another clip, which is where he talks about how them stopping touring and it's the, the process of Steely Dan stopping touring, which actually really signals the end of the band as, as such. Let's have a listen to that. Yeah, I guess around uh, 74, after the last tour, uh-huh. uh, it, it, it became obvious that it was difficult to to tour on the weekends and try to get back in the studio during the week. Yeah. That you, you really need to concentrate on the studio. You know, once most of the band was dismissed, uh, it, it seemed that going on the road uh, would require hiring uh, some very expensive musicians. So, yeah. You know, and in fact, there was almost another tour, and it never came off. Mm-hmm. You know, we actually started rehearsing, and and it just uh, it was canceled uh, before it ever got off the ground. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'd forgotten that there was supposed to be another tour. I mean, you you probably knew that, Wayne. That there was there was a tour that was cancelled. Did you remember that? Not really. You know, I tend not to pay too much attention to details of things that didn't happen. <laughs> you're not a big not big into counterfactual <laughs> but so anyway he talks about then the breakup of the band him leaving music becoming a computer programmer for about 20 years at the time of this interview in 95 he's starting to record for himself on using hard disk recording at home i don't know what if anything came 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 of that he wasn't invited back at all when Steve Dan did become a live band, and latterly Barney was he. Then he wasn't part of those. No, so Martin, you'll know about John Harrington, who was a very good sort of, you know, did did all, yes, did all those to, amazing guitar parts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they seem to settle on a kind of someone who could cover all the styles, from Elliot right, Randall yeah. to Rick Derringer to. To Jeff doing Baxter, the DS parts exactly. too. So, uh, and yeah, I guess also yeah. because Denny wasn't on the late, I think KT Lied was the last album he played on. You know, they right. were drawing stuff from later albums than that. But so, it, you know, it, it wasn't like he was a part of the band at that point. Yeah. It is Denny who plays the famous, like, electric sitar solo on Do It Again. Do it again. Yes. Uh, that's why I always grew up believing, and I hope that's right. <laughs> no, it's true. It's, it's credited. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. Quiet, isn't it? I mean, somewhere in, I think maybe there's, so there's a piece we're adding as part of the Steely Dan feature by Nick Hornby, uh, a sort of archetypal Steely Dan fan. And he talks about this remastered Greatest Hits collection. And he mentions that at the end, for whatever reasons, the last two tracks, I don't know whether they're different versions or whatever, but there's, it's dirty work and Josie. And he kind of says, it's almost like they're two different bands. Right. Yeah. And I just wondered whether in general we all felt a little bit that because they they sort of my God, by the time of Asia. Right. You know, there's very long tracks with those incredible sort of instrumental sections. 
I mean, Wayne, did you feel that, that Steely Downs almost became a different band and were they a better band or just a different band by the time of Asia and Gaucho? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously more polished, more confident, pickier. Uh, you know, all uh, Asia <laughs> must have taken just an amazing amount of time and money to make. I mean, I've heard the stories about... Uh, great studio guitarists being flown to LA to put down eight bars and then them throwing it out and uh, <laughs> things like that. But the song, the songs remained the same. You could tell that they were the work of the same writers. I mean, Deacon Blues, you know, they call Alabama the Crimson Tide. I, I mean, that's that's not Chuck Berry. You know what I mean? That is that is Fagan and Becker. Mm-hmm. So it remains clever, even amidst all the polish. It's not the, my favorite Steely Dan, but I don't have any unfavorite Steely Dan <laughs> albums. You know what I mean? I, I think they're all really good. In fact, you know, when I wrote about Countdown to Ecstasy on my Substack, and I said, you know, Steely Dan's best or just my favorite. Well, here's the secret: I'm gonna, when I write about Pretzel Logic, I'm going to use the same headline: Steely Dan's <laughs> best or just my favorite. <laughs> I, 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 actually, out of interest, the, the last clip we're going to play at the end of the podcast is Denny Diaz recounting how when Steely Dan presented Countdown to Ecstasy to the label, the label just didn't get it at all, didn't like it at all, didn't push it at all. That's, you know, it was basically the, the record was frozen out by their own by their own label. He himself, he's asked which is his favourite Steely Dan album. Interestingly, he, he talk, says Gaucho, which I don't think he's even near. He's, he's not, not even on, on it. <laughs> you know, no, um, that's so selfless. That's amazing. <laughs> that's pretty great. I love Gaucho. One thing that we haven't quite touched on is, is the lyrical wit. I mean, you kind of, just touched on it a little bit, Wayne, but I think that's a it's because it's not just about the polish of the thing. It goes back to, I mean, having heard you talk about Bard College, it kind of goes back to that poetic outsiderish observation of just slightly weird situations and scenarios. It's just something that I find really compelling. I mean, I'm pretty sure my old school is about a drug bust at Bard College. Correct. So that, <laughs> I, I love Daddy that record. G. I mean, I love the guitars in that record. I think the guitars yeah. in that record sound I mean, correct unbelievably me if I'm amazing. Wrong, but... Gino and Daddy G, I think that refers either Gino or Daddy G or both, uh, G Gordon Liddy, right? Yes. Who was the chief prosecutor in Dutchess County or something and kind of, there was a bust, wasn't there? But anyway, so you're right, Jasper. <laughs> yeah. And it mentions Annandale, which is where... Bard yeah. is. So it is one of the great, like, back to college songs. Funnily enough, I mean, I had a slightly terrible thing to say. My favourite Steely Dan album is actually Donald Fagan's The Nightfly, which I uh, think is the most fantastic yeah. record. And one of the reasons why I like it is because the lyrics are a bit more personal in a curious kind mm. of way. As much as I love Steely Dan, actually the artfulness of the lyrics, sometimes I found a bit of a barrier. 
oddly interesting. Is it because you, also because the Nightfly is essentially, I suppose, a concept album? Um, yeah. Yeah, but well, it's not, also, it's, it's but very it's personal. Quite a it's a personal it's, concept album. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very much about Fagan's life and uh, and youth and childhood and so And it's so not so the forth. kind of conceptual album that Pete Townsend would do, where he would write oh, himself God. as a character God. or, you oh, know. Thank shit. God. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's a perfect, just to, the key to mention the fact that we're we're running this great Sam Sutherland interview with Donald from, you know, 80, 82 when the Nightfly came out. And it very much, I mean, the, the, the sort of stand first says, from the dark, jaded regions of Steely Dan emerges an intellectual with an album about innocence. And Sam asks Donald precisely about what you were just saying, Mark, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, being more personal. And, and, and Fagan actually says that um, he admits and agrees that Steely Dan was quite anti-romantic. And on this album, he says, I was more concerned with first love, which is part of growing up. There are some extremely idealized versions of high school romance here. I mean, I love it too. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Martin, I think you're, a, you're a Nightfly yes, no, I like fan it. as well. I, I have a slight problem with later Steely Dan. There's a kind of airlessness yes. to it that um, I agree. Fine, is slightly off-putting. I think partly it was that they were always trying to make a drum machine replace all these great drummers, and I never got yes. that. It's like, you know, the humanness of Purdy or... Or Steve Gadd. Oh, Steve Gadd. Yeah, yeah. I listened to Asia. Any of them. I mean, those solos by Steve Gadd on, on, on Asia's title track. They really are. I mean, you know, yes, Steve Gadd, the great, like, oh, every drummer drools over Steve Gadd. But they are They're great. some of the most thrilling They're drumming great. you will yes. ever hear in your life. Yeah. Also, no, it's hilarious that Steve Gadd was the drummer that they never hired because they <laughs> didn't like his backbeat enough. <laughs> and then he's down the co- he's down the road and they, at another <laughs> studio in the complex and they figure uh-huh. that. We'll try him out on this. <laughs> Roger Nichols, their long-standing engineer, he used to have this column in one of the Mix magazine, I think it was called Mix, and his column would, would start like Steely Dan album day two hundred and fifty-three. We're moving, <laughs> we're moving the hi hats back in nanosecond increments, you know, <laughs> and, and that that when they actually started slicing up a real drummer and turning. A, a, the feel real, of an actual drummer. Yeah, slice them up, <laughs> you know. But slicing up the real drums and, and, and reassembling them, you know, mm. with a very early version of as what became samplers. It was terrible. I mean, it absolutely extracted the groove from their records completely. Personally, I can't stand Gaucho, which is exactly, I think, Martin, what you're kind of talking about. When I it gets to, to that point, although I, I like Gaucho. some of Gaucho a lot, yes, too much I of like it's Gaucho about too. <laughs> Oh, oh, Gaucho, you cannot say about it. Anyway, I was going to ask you, <laughs> Wayne, just because of what you said earlier about your childhood and parallels with Donald Fagan's childhood, whether the Nightfly spoke to you in, I mean, a different way that it would have spoken to us. We, we all fell in love with it. But did it speak to you in a kind of quite a personal way? And do you love it? Well, I love it, but I like Kamakuriad more. Oh, because I have a stronger, deeper emotional connection to it. 
especially. Again, I did a, one of my Substack pieces. I did two in a row on Kamakiriad very recently. The first one, I was going to just introduce the Q&A, but I wrote 1,500 words of introduction. So that became column one. And then I did the interview that I did with Donald, in which he talked about going through therapy and how he uses science fiction to, that it's a good thing to use to have some distance from the emotional stuff. But there is a song there called Florida Room, which would not mean much to people not from the New York area. But the Florida Room is a den in a condominium in South Florida, where my people and Donald's people, the Jews from the Northeast, middle-class Jewish people, are retired to, and these in the towns of Delray Beach, Boynton Beach, and Boca Raton. And my whole family lived and died down there. Uh, but my mother was inordinately proud of, and as she fell into dementia, she would sit in the Florida room of her condo and just stare out the window and look at the little man-made pond. It was a, it, the Florida room was, was kind of the pride of, of the tiny manners that these, that our parents were attracted to. And so it's very poignant to me. And sure. there are other personal connections as, as well, as there always are, which is just so strange, you know, the the parallels throughout every Steely Dan album. And I, you know, and I did interview them for each album. I, you know, when I saw them opening for Cheech and Chong, I when we walked down to our seats, I looked at them and I said, holy cow, I went to Bard with these guys. I had no <laughs> idea that who was in the band or whatever. And I recognized them immediately. And so when I did that interview for Cream and NME back in 1974 in Los Angeles, they tried to, you know, do their sort of deflecting cynical, not too cooperative with the press sort of attitude. And I said, look, guys, I, I was living in Potter Hall when you guys were living in, you know, the next dorm down. And Donald and I both wrote for the Bard Observer newspaper. He would do a little, the occasional little item, sarcastic record review or something, a bit of comedy. <laughs> and you know, the editor said, just be careful in the hallway. Fagan and Becker hide their drugs in a sock hanging on a, the coat rack out the door. So, you know, I, I, the Bard thing gave me an inside look at their, at the early work, you know, there is there is a subtext that I was able to catch at the very beginning that repeated itself even after they were they and me were long done with Bard, and they kept speaking to me as if they had, you know, a microphone stuck, you know, in my head. That's incredible. And just to think, you could have gone to college with Cheech and Chong. <laughs> <laughs> 
brings us to the end of the steely down portion of the show as it were we could i know keep talking about them probably till sundown and it has been really fascinating hearing from you on on that we've got a little bit of time just to run through some of the highlights of pieces that have been added to the rbp library the ever growing ever (laughs) swelling library of music journalism archive of music journalism so wayne if you hear something or a name that prompts you know a significant memory you know like raise your hand jump in but mark tell us tell us about pieces you've added recently yeah last week starting with last week 1961 maureen cleveland evening standards profiling interviewing juliette greco which is just oh. marvelous to have a piece on on her and, oh very and good and of course she sort of writes it in sort of semi pseudo french uh, when she quotes juliette juliette says I am being what I love. I am being a success. When I'm alone on the stage, to me, it is a miracle every time. You see, they like me, the public. And this is how Maureen Cleave writes it. It's public, P-O-O-B-L-I-C. The public like me. The public is one person, and you must do everything to make them love you. Oh, sure, I love them. It's just great to get this in. She I love the, that you did that in French <laughs> the other day. I think I was like, can't you read that in Yorkshire or something? <laughs> no, no, no. It comes to French. But it can, no, it. the French accent is much <laughs> more convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Moving Head 10 years, 1971, the second part of Tom Nolan's huge Beach Boys feature for Rolling Stone. And this one is very much about, well, Manson appears in this one and Murray Wilson appears in it. He talks to, he interviews Murray Wilson, Brian Wilson, the Wilson brothers' father. And Murray says things like, Brian sings about, he's written a lot of his, his songs about his own life and himself, like In My Room. That was written, you know, about his room. <laughs> <laughs> And is Murray saying this is a good thing or not? (laughs) Too personal. It's what it is. 1977, David Bowie interviewed by a certain Wayne Robbins for Newsday. Who he? Who he? (laughs) He says, I took all my characters from Ziggy to the Thin thin White Duke and left them in a wardrobe in Los Angeles. I physically locked them away. And Berlin was the antithesis of Los Angeles for start. I tend to revolt completely against the last thing I've done. That goes for lifestyle as well as work. By lifestyle, I think he was talking about drugs because his uh, Los Angeles cocaine. was, was cocaine his, in Los Angeles. The cocaine years, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Wayne, do you remember that interview? Do you remember speaking to Bowie? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's succinct. And that's what's so strange about it. I remember speaking to Bowie for when he was promoting The Elephant Man on Broadway, and I may have interviewed him again for the movie um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. (laughs) But for the longest time, I had in my mind this idea that I never got to speak to Bowie about any of his important records. And when this showed up in the Rock's Back Pages library, I said, oh, my God, I, I've been telling the wrong story to myself all this time. That's great. That's really what we're here for. That was the mission statement, was to remind rock critics of a certain generation who they actually spoke to. 
<laughs> oh, it's, it's great. Okay, moving on to 1983, uh, Julie Panabianco in Boston Rock uh, interviews Boy George, and he says things like, I don't want people to want to suck my cock. I don't want people to think, ooh, I want to sleep with him. I don't want any of that rot. <laughs> my description of Culture Club would be, we are a very, very modern example of plagiarism in modern music, which is pretty hmm. good. Okay, this week... Not a great interview, but with a fabulous person, um, James Booker, the um, New Orleans pianist, who oh. uh, Martin and I saw, I think, in that year in 76 down 100 Club was when we yeah. went, went to see him. Now, we remember this differently, Martin. We've had it, should be, there's, there's, there's a whole <laughs> chunk of this. That's where we, <laughs> Rashomon we, comes uh, up well, again. He, talk, he talks to John Abbey in Blues and Soul. He talks about his drug addiction. He says, I was mm. shooting dope so much that my memory is a little cloudy about it all. Some things I remember and some things are complete blank. I kept kicking the habit and then getting back on it again. I was all mixed up and disappointed in myself, but I can honestly say I never felt comfortable at any time that I was shooting. Things just weren't the way I wanted them to be. I felt rejected at a time when I was actually being very well accepted. Now, this is 76. My memory of that show, Martin, is that the first set was astonishing. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like we, we were coming down the stairs into the 100 Club. It had already just started, and it sounded like a New Orleans big band on the stage and one man with a piano stamping his yeah. foot. But the second set, he got slower and slower, and then he stopped and he stepped down off the stage, and this is what we disagree about. I remember him coming through the crowd saying, does anyone know where I can get any heroin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you don't you don't remember what, this what do you remember, remember martin no i remember that the first half was staggering and the second half right. was strange but uh, you know and it was staggering we'll and i really i really recommend the bayou maharaja the film the film about booker right a staggering it was oh, a staggering I'll to, talent i'll have to try that it has down. the best interview right. with harry connick jr who was 12 at the time and his dad was attorney general in uh, his, mom, his, his dad, who's a, a neo-fascist attorney general, I mean, he's a hard right-wing Republican, hires a gay black junkie to teach his son to play yes. piano. I, I know, it's astonishing. Only and, in New Orleans, only in New Orleans. The did, did he check thing, his references? Did he ask no, for references? He, he, got, he, he protected Booker. He got him out of lots of drug oh, yeah. wow, and things. Wow, that's amazing. Very odd. And there's a fantastic minute in the film where Harry Connick taped all of Booker's phone calls. And one, one phone call is Booker calling him up and saying, How, can you help me get out of jail? And he said, Booker, man, I'm 12 years old. What can I do? <laughs> it's, and there's some black and white footage uh, from like just cheap videos cams that, that clubs used, I don't know, you know, like yeah. those, the Bill Graham's walk gang yeah, yeah. stuff. They were just a kind of fixed camera of Booker playing uh, just astonishing things. Oh, just a the start as one, as yeah, like a pop a song and turn into something player. else. He's just amazing. That album Joe Boyd produced on him with just him playing piano and singing with no band yeah. or anything. A Junko partner. It's, yeah, just, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's just fantastic record. Jungle Bond. He was loaded, it was loaded. Loaded as can be. Moving swiftly on. Tom Petty to Fred Schroer's in Circus 1976. What you hear on our first record was the band forming, 
We did 15 songs in 15 days. I wrote American Girl on July the 4th, all at once, my stream of consciousness bicentennial tribute. <laughs> Hollywood is my new home now. It's the promised land for musicians, man. I don't know about bricklayers, but the social life of musicians is great. Everyone's up all the time. Yeah, I don't think Steely Dan had a slightly different story to tell about Los Angeles. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Richard Goldstein writing about the 60s and Village Voice in 1988. This is just a fantastic piece. Richard Goldstein, absolutely one of my favourite writers. And this is him sort of looking back at what the 60s sort of meant. He says, sure, sexism was pervasive. We stood in awe of rock stars who careened around in limos with writhing young girls affixed to the hood. So was racism. We were far more tethered to the old order than we thought. Jews wrote masterpieces while wasps went to the moon. Blacks fought a war against Asians, declared by whites. Women got laid but not promoted. Catholics held power by being discreet, but there was an opening. It's a terrific piece. And lastly, Marky Smith, Paul Lester interviewed him in Melody Maker 90. It's all, 1990 is like the peak of Manchester and all of that Man Manchester scene going on. Of course, Marky Smith is a Manchester native. He says... That's why I used to like it in Manchester. The people were cool, but it's 70% tourists now in flares asking where you can get a fucking E and all that or coming up to you and going, you're the man who started all this, aren't you? And I'm going, no, I fucking am not. <laughs> women rock journalists don't understand this. They come on to you and if you don't shag them, then your music's a rackle. So they say I'm a bad-tempered old swine. So, you know, the usual charming Marky Smith. I'm sure every female music journalist wanted to sleep with Marky Smith. I don't <laughs> no. think. So that's my lot. Okay, lovely. Thanks, Marco. I just wanted to quickly mention one piece that I added, which was a report by Edward Helmore in The Guardian in October 2017 about the about-to-be-published biography of John Wenner. Oh, yes. And I know when you did write for Rolling Stone, not primarily, but uh, and you probably have read this biography. I, I happen to be reading it at the moment, so it, this really caught my eye. You know, I've come five years late to it but it's a really interesting little piece about Wenner's reaction to Joe Hagen's book which is called Sticky Fingers he says that you know Wenner when I said that instead of producing the nuanced portrait uh, about my life and the culture that Rolling Stone chronicled, Hagen had produced something deeply flawed and tawdry rather than um, <laughs> substantial. Um, <laughs> and Hagen, to his credit, says, you know, well, the reaction is somewhat predictable. Jan doesn't really think about the finer points of his history in the way that I discovered it through my research. Um, I knew this book was going to be hard for him because if you tell the true story, it's hard. So very, yeah, I, very. I, well, I, I read the I read the book as, I as well, and uh, yeah. it's fascinating and it's deeply dispiriting as well. Yes, it really is. I mean, the last thing that Edward says is about you know Edward says. Uh, the book is a subtle reading of the workings of American celebrity and the New York that Wenner would come to inhabit. And he says it's the, the he, he, what's particularly interesting is what the stars that Rolling Stone sometimes slavishly covered mm -hmm. truly thought of. Wenner. So you know, he, he thought that Mick and Keith loved him and then this book comes out and the truth is revealed. Did, did you read that book, Wayne, as a matter of interest? I read uh, certain parts of it, serialized, various magazines. I liked what I read. I thought Hagen was thorough and fair mm -hmm. and understood Wenner as basically he came to New York 
to be a social climber. Yeah. Yep. And that is the problem with Rolling Stone. There were two eras of Rolling Stone. There was the San Francisco era, which was early when it was interesting and fresh. Yep. And, and then there was when it came to New York, well, it just became social climbing for, for Jan and lost its mojo no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think we'd completely agree with that. I mean, it's not to say there wasn't terrific writing in Rolling Stone afterwards, sure. through the 70s and 80s and even 90s, but the soul had gone from the magazine and it become slavishly arse-licking of the major rock acts. They introduced the star system for reviews, which is kind of always a sort of bad sign, full stop. And you suddenly notice everyone's getting three and a half stars, regardless yes. of what's written in the review, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> I yeah. couldn't agree more. This is yeah. this has been, a, Mark, this has been a meme in my mind for <laughs> decades. You say Rolling Stone to me, record reviews, and I'll say three and a half stars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jasper, what have you got for us this week? A couple of things. First of which, I mean, this is all stuff from last week, but first of which is Among the Mooks, R.J. Smith in the New York Times on the 6th of August 2000. This is a really long piece about rap metal, whose listeners were termed mooks by Spin magazine, and they then picked it up as a kind of slightly dubious badge of honor. But R.J. Smith writes... I grew up in Detroit, rap metal's ground zero, home to Kid Rock, Eminem, and the insane clown posse. And I knew people who needed Kid Rock in their lives, an artist raising the self-esteem of doormats everywhere. And it's <laughs> right after Woodstock 99, cool. which is obviously a, a horrible, horrible, horrible event. But RJ Smith manages to tell a really actually complicated and interesting story. I mean, rap rock is like widely reviled and like Woodstock 99, rightly reviled. But he manages to, to capture that complexity. Yeah, he's a good writer. Very good. He's Very a fantastic writer. writer. Boasting that he comes straight out of the trailer, Rock hurls the epithet of white trash back at the world, much in the same way gangster groups like NWA did with Compton and the N-Word. At its best, the current fusion of rap and metal lets people who feel unblessed by the economy express some righteous anger. It tells them that what's happening to their lives is not their fault. But more often, rap metal aims a lot lower. It tells people who feel they've been treated badly that it's okay to act badly in return. Mm. If the world makes you out to be a brute, why not throw the brute back at the world? So yeah. it's just a fascinating piece, and it's, and it's worth a read for an insight into something that's, I think, often just laughed at and yeah. dismissed. And I think that that was actually part of the problem, was that these were all people who are getting laughed at and dismissed and then reacted in a way that yeah. was just... Horrible. Jasper, have you seen the Woodstock 99 documentary on Netflix? I haven't. Watch I haven't. It. It's awful. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's three hours and it's the most dispiriting three hours you'll spend your life. <laughs> but, it, 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 but it is absolutely fascinating. And, but the poor women, the way women... Yeah, were... I mean, he goes, he goes into all of that in this piece yeah. and, it's, and it's, it is just awful, awful, awful. Next up, a bit nicer. Love, <laughs> peace, and hair grease, remembering Soul Train's Don Cornelius, oh, Michael oh. A. Gonzalez in Complex <laughs> on the 2nd of February 2012. And it's just a great great article going into Soul Train and the mythology of Soul Train and how what an important program it was. It was a TV show that was featuring dance music, you know, black dance music at a time when those kinds of things didn't get 
on telly very yeah. much and and it and it was hugely important and he interviews uh, someone who's written a book about soul train i think her name is erica blunt she says don was an innovator when it came to business and he made it happen soul train was blackness that wasn't watered down it was that rare show where we could be ourselves and watch musical acts that nobody else showed and so it's, it's just great and soul train is fantastic and there was so much so many great shows on soul train great performances yeah. and so yeah I, I, wasn't it's, it's, shalimar's jeffrey daniels didn't he get his start as a dancer on soul train i think this vaguely rings right. rings, rings some something vague. like he was bells. certainly hired the man who invented the moonwalk. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. He was certainly hired for Charlemagne because of his dancing abilities. Mm, yeah, not, not so much because of his singing <laughs> abilities. Anyway, lastly, since you were asking about jazz earlier, Barney, I thought I'd mention how Count Basie brought big band jazz into the atomic age by Mitchell Cohen and music aficionado. If Duke Ellington's orchestra was the Beatles of the swing era, a sophisticated, innovative band with a broad stylistic palette and a genius in-house composer, then maybe Basie's big band was the Stones, steeped in blues influences, visceral and assertive, more about the beat and the propulsion. And then he's talking, he talks about a bunch of classic Basie recordings. So if you want to know where to start with Basie, read the article. But he concludes on a note about the Frank Sinatra recordings at the Sands. And on an alternative version of I've Got You Under My Skin from a different show, he tells Sinatra tells the audience, we're going to take this here building and move it three feet that way. Now hold on to your handbag. And he isn't kidding. This was a band that could move buildings and blast a singer into orbit. <laughs> Lovely. Great. Lovely. Great. We're going to take this here building and move it three feet that way. Now. Hold on to your handbags. Well, that's a lovely way to to end the podcast but I do just need to I promised I would mention what you guys over on that side of the pond called soccer Wayne but you rightly refer to as football <laughs> it may come as some surprise to listeners to this episode that Wayne is a religiously follows the Premier League and is a Tottenham Hotspur supporter Ooh. and <laughs> at least three of us on this grid are not Tottenham Hotspur <laughs> I should make that call and our team Chelsea this is excluding Martin who's a, a Man United fan but three of us from my Chelsea, sins. we just played your team Wayne and I do want to mention unlike our we was Lee, robbed we was yeah. robbed but here's the thing Wayne very very graciously admitted uh, and, and agreed that we was robbed, unlike our friend Lee Haynes, who claimed it was a fair <laughs> result. And nearly got his head, his head kicked in, didn't he? So, but Wayne, very, very briefly, how the hell did you become a Tottenham Hotspur supporter? Well, there was a book that came out about how soccer made the world, remade the world, or something like that. But I became a Hotspurs fan because when my daughters were younger and interested in soccer, Tottenham came to uh, New Jersey to do a friendly against the uh, New Jersey Bulls of the American Soccer League. Mm -hmm. And so I got us tickets and we went to the game. And, you know, there was also this earlier i don't think i don't know how important it is or whether it's part of football consciousness anymore about how 
Tottenham because of its location in the Jewish area of North London yeah, yeah. became affiliated and, and known to be like the Jewish team. And that carried over here at this game in New Jersey where it looked like the stadium was full and it looked like every Jewish religious school boy had taken <laughs> the day off to come to this game. They played it's hooky. Wonderful. To watch the and, Jewish you know, football team. The whole stadium wow. is wearing uh, kippahs, yarmulkes, head, uh, Fantastic. and that Israeli flags and things oh like God. that. Oh, my God. It was, it was quite – it was really it's interesting. Yeah. And also – because what I read about how Tottenham took the anti-Semitism of some of their uh, Derby rivals, I think. Let's not mention no. them by name, shall right, we? Right. <laughs> but, you know, oh, there's, there's one, I, you know, and just like you were talking about the MOOCs, and the N-word in hip-hop, Tottenham fans, there was a time when they said, okay, you know. You, we'll you be in. We'll, 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 we'll appropriate the Y-word. The y yes. yes. We'll be in. Yeah, exactly. So there was an identification there. And then, of course, they have Harry Kane. <laughs> and, 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 and you don't. So, <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah. Very good. And, you know, you have to make a choice because I think I told you in my, Barney, in my first visit ever to London, my first night there, I was, I had rented a hotel room near Victoria Station and I was at the pub on the corner there. And I went to get a pint, and some guy said, who had a few too, too many pints already, said, who's your favorite football team? And I knew this was a trap. And I knew, and this was the year, this was the early 70s. It was the era of soccer hooliganism, you know, I did. So I deftly said, the New York Giants football they asked me about football Very good. and when the giants aren't playing i'll root for the new york jets and this person insisted no i mean english football and i said well you know i have to say i don't know enough about it to make an informed choice why don't you tell me who i should root for smart cookie yeah and so his friends saw that he had had a little too many and that he was, his hostility was, that I, I was not deserving of this bully's hostility. And they helped diffuse it. And I went back to my, when they had stand-up tables in pubs, you could just stand at your, in, in the back. And I just drank my pint and did not get stomped. <laughs> yeah, well navigated. Yeah, well, yes. well, well played, sir. The, actually, the, the, the second game I uh, went to, my father took me to, was when I was just about to turn 10 years old in January 1966. It was Chelsea versus Tottenham Hotspur. Chelsea 2, Spurs 1. George Graham and Peter Osgood scoring for Chelsea and Dave Mackay scoring a Tottenham Hotspur penalty. 
Mm-hmm. There we go. 2-1 Two, okay. Two, is what obviously the final score should have been on Sunday. <laughs> right. Okay. On that note, listen, thanks everybody for listening. Please do review the RBP podcast on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. We would really appreciate that. We and would it remains for us to thank you so much, Wayne, for joining us all the way from Queens the borough of Queens. We're going to go out with a final audio clip from Denny Diaz, as Mark referred to earlier, talking about Countdown Ecstasy. So this is goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from all of you. Can I just say one thing first? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) And could I say thank you so much for having me? It's been a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. Great pleasure. Thank you, Wayne. A great pleasure. So to the pair. Bye. Bye. Good evening and welcome to the Rainbow. Tonight you will have a musical treat. All the way from Los Angeles, the marvelous Steely Dan. I'll tell you, when we finished that record, it was uh, it was anticipated uh, by the uh, the record company, you know, that they were anxious to get their hands on it, and so uh, a number of the executives uh, came into the studio to hear it played back for the first time before it was even mastered, mm-hmm. and nobody seemed to like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. in fact, that they were so unhappy about it that that there was hardly any promotion, and, and in fact, uh, it was uh, disappointing uh, commercially. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? Because it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's a, a, a blistering record, really. I think it's right from the off. It, it really does. Yeah, well, we were trying to trying to, to go uh, higher and better, you know, and, and this company was uh, more used to, like, you know, pop AM type stuff. Sure. Yeah. You know, so they were looking for something more commercially saleable, and, and what they heard was, uh, uh, you know, a little bit more sophisticated music, and they didn't know what to think of it. That was Denny Diaz in conversation with Andy Gill in 1995, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Wayne Robbins. Sign up for his newsletter, Critical Conditions, at waynerobbins49.substack.com. The host are Bonnie Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Thank you very kindly. Thank you.